0: All right. Hey, y'all can go ahead and take a seat. I love that sound so much. People getting to know one another. Well, uh, I do hope we're going to start a little bit differently. I do hope that you've had an excellent week. Uh, It was Thanksgiving this last week. I hope that you had great food, great time with family. Um, And this morning, just even as you're talking and thinking and praying, um, something that came to to my mind was that for some of you, uh, Thanksgiving tables looked a little bit differently this year because there were men or women that were around those tables in years past uh, that weren't there this year, that Thanksgiving was a time of thankfulness, but it was also simultaneously a time of, of grief, So before we jump into the text today, I just want to take a moment and just just give us some space to to pray, uh, specifically for the men and women here um, and even in our city that just experienced grief this last uh, week as they looked around the table and saw seats that were once full but are now empty. So would you join me in praying? Jesus, I um, have had this picture from the Gospel of John of you being the resurrection and the life, walking up to the tomb of your friend Lazarus and and weeping, that um, you looked at death and you felt the loss of your friend. Even though you knew what you were about to do, you knew you were about to raise him from the the dead, even though you are the resurrection and the life, in one hand, the resurrection and the life. In the other hand, the absolute humanity that you had as well. Fully God, fully man, Jesus, you you give this picture of hope and of grief. Um, and so my prayer for the men and women in this room and the men and women uh, in this city, the men and women we may be around, um, would be uh, Psalm 34, that you would be near to the brokenhearted. It would be Psalm forty-seven, three. that you heal the broken heart and you bind up their wounds. Jesus, I pray that you would do that. Um, God, help us to be a part of comforting those who are around us and even each other. God, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for today. We're grateful to get to open up your word. We're grateful for the text of the Bible, and we're grateful um, for what you're doing here. We ask that you'd be with us. Help us. Teach us today. It's in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, my name's Rudy. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I get to be on staff at DOXA. Um, If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11, continuing our series through the book of Daniel. And just as you're turning there, I just want to appreciate like this moment as you uh, reach and you open up or you turn on uh, your Bible, it's, it's just important enough to me to note that it hasn't always been possible for us to be able to do that. It hasn't always been possible for you to be able to open up the Bible in a language that you understand, a personal copy of it yourself, and read it and, uh, on your own. In fact, I think there's never been a moment where scripture's been so readily available to all of us. It's kind of like... Um, Ariel's Cavern from The Little Mermaid. we got scripture and studies aplenty. Sermons and podcasts galore. You want book recommendations? I got 20, right? Like I could get all the way into it. We have so much Bible at our fingertips and it's just not always been that way. It costs a lot to get that Bible in your hands. William Tyndale translated the Bible into the, into English, one of the first translations of that, first translation of the Bible into English, and for that he was choked and burned alive. The Huguenots, 70,000 of them were murdered because they would not recant of their Protestantism that caused them to say, I just want to read the Bible and meditate on Scripture and and live my life and following after Jesus, meditating on the Word and and discerning their their means, working out my faith and life through it. They believed the Scriptures were authoritative and true, were worthy of their trust in their lives. And this morning we hold... The fruit of that. We hold an English translation in our hands and we're going to open it up to read the scriptures, to meditate on them, and to live out our life and faith as we abide in the text as well. We turn to the text because it points us to Jesus. And as we, you like read and study the Bible, you'll find it's divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've been in the Old Testament, but there's this gap that exists between the Old Testament and, and the New Testament that I think is important enough to like pay attention to approximately like 400 years between the closing of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and the beginning of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. So as we open up the scriptures, it's appropriate for us to ask, what happens in that time in between? Um, And Daniel 11 actually helps shade in a good bit of that space. In fact, it's really interesting to me that, that that time, that 400 years is called the age of silence because in that time, no scripture was inspired or written. But I wonder if it's not the age of silence so much as it is the age of the echo, that the words of Daniel 11 echoing through those centuries for the people of God to hold on to as they experienced what is said in this text in real time, echoing through that period to them and then echoing this morning across eternity to us. This this chapter of scripture, Daniel chapter 11, which is all at once like dense and disastrous and the first First time you open it up, it's a little bit confusing, maybe a lot bit confusing, uh, but after study, it seemed to be astounding. One of the most detailed prophetic writings in the entirety of Scripture it covers a few centuries of history and the region of the world that Daniel finds himself in. We're going to teach some of it verse by verse, and, and for out of necessity, we're going to have to summarize a bit of it this morning. But ultimately, it begs the question, like, why is this, Daniel 11, like, why is this in the Bible? Why did Daniel receive this vision? And the answer to that kind of depends on who you are and, and when you are. Like for Daniel, this is given to him in response to his prayer. We read this last week in Daniel chapter 10 to set this up. I have come to help you understand the angel speaking to Daniel. I've come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the last days. For the vision refers to those days. Rob said this last week, but as we read it, it is frankly uncommon that an angel would directly verbally answer a prayer with a vision. There's a reason that this is uncommon in the scripture. And when something uncommon occurs, we can acknowledge that it is odd and that oddness can actually draw our attention towards it. Daniel is experiencing an intense moment of withness as his prayer is viscerally and thoughtfully answered by an angelic being. It's it's also written for the sake of God's people in this in-between intertestamental time who will see experience intense difficulty through the war that's raging all around them. Like, imagine, as we get into Daniel 11, just imagine that you're hearing this text read in the public reading of Scripture while you're experiencing what was foretold happening around you in that moment. You're experiencing the pain of the real-life experience of war around you, and your neighbor leans over and whispers into your ear, hey, remember that God knew. Remember that he revealed this. Remember that we've been prepared for it. The the third Group that this speaks to is those who would read it after the occurrence of these events, which is, is us. For us to look back on scripture, this, this prophetic vision that's foretold and understand that God knows the future better than we remember the past. For us to look back at the intense accuracy of this vision, some of which we'll be covering this morning. For us to see the example of people who endured through this and then to look ahead and know that whatever pain or difficulty may come significant or subtle, that Christians can know God and stand firm in him. Now that language, to know God and stand firm, comes straight from the 32nd verse of this chapter. It's where we're going to land the plane this morning as we walk through this vision given to Daniel. And it gets formed to our main idea. Uh, Note takers, this is for you. Here's our main idea for the morning. Those who know God will be strengthened to stand firm. Those who know God will be strengthened to stand firm. Now about two-thirds of the chapter uh, lies between us and and there. And that two-thirds of the chapter will explain exactly why they needed to be strengthened and exactly why we need that same strength today and for the days to come. And I I was really just buying you time to get to Daniel chapter 11. But it looks like you all are. So let's let's get in. Daniel chapter 11. We'll start in verse 2. Daniel 11 verse 1 is commonly understood to be the end of chapter 10. So we'll start in verse 2. Now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. This is the vision that's being given to Daniel, the words from the angelic being given to Daniel. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he's become strong through his riches, he will stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity or his descendants, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. All right. Everyone gets that, right? No, we're going to do a little bit of work to, to outline what's going on here. Lock in, Doxa, because we're, we're going to get into it here. There's going to be three more kings, Dan- Daniel hears, that will arise in Persia following Cyrus, their per- current current king. It would be Cambyses, Pseudo Smerdis, and Darius Hestapis. Uh, Darius is like this title. He, he would have been one of the kings. It's says three down the line. But the fourth king would be far richer than any of them, and it's the famous Persian king of antiquity, Xerxes one He was exceedingly wealthy, and this wealth initially led to arrogance, which fueled a military attempt at conquering the region of Greece. Per the historian Herodias, uh, Xerxes stirs up nearly a million-man army, only to be defeated by the United Greek fleet at the Battle of Salamis in 490 BC. Xerxes retreats hastily, leaves about 100,000 people behind who are decimated over the next year. And while this is not the end of the Persian Empire, it does mark the beginning of their end. Their end would come about 160 years later through the rising up of, at the text, a mighty king who ruled with dominion and did what he willed, who is understood to be Alexander the Great. In 331 BC, he would defeat the Persians in Gwegemala, Um, Sorry, Guagamala. I don't know why it said Gwegemala, um, To which the historical consensus is held that this marked the end of the Persian Empire. They would continue to push further as an army until Alexander was compelled to return west by his generals. And this is broadly understood to be one of the most significant military conquests in the history of the world. And then four years later, Alexander the Great would die "'After a drunken party of a fever that he'd get at it. "'An abrupt ending, check the text, "'as soon as he rose up, his kingdom was broken.'" It was broken after his death, some historians write, into 30 divisions, which were quickly consolidated into four, broken up by four of Alexander's generals who would lead the broken kingdom. None of his children would make it. His child, Hercules, uh, was murdered after his death, and then after Alexander died, uh, his son that was born posthumously to Alexander, Alexander uh, the, the Younger, was also murdered. So these four generals take up the leadership of this kingdom that's divided. They were called the diadochi, which is translated into the successors, right? Okay. I'm trying to give you an example of how intricate like like this is. That was three verses, all right? So that's what we're dealing with this morning as we're getting into 137 plus details lined out through this text. So we're going to lay that out. We're going to give you a summary of a lot of it, but we'll take a breath here. Of all the world empires at the time which would have included the Gupat and Shunga empires in Eastern Asia, would have included the Mayan civilization in the West, just to name a few. This prophetic vision is only focused on two, Persia and Greece. Why? it, It begs the question, why these two? And it's because they were and would be calculated assaults and attempts made by both of these nations to completely annihilate the people of the covenant, the Jewish people. Persia's attempt would be seen all the way through the back in the book of Esther through the attempt of Haman to completely annihilate all Hebrew men and women forbidding their defense where Queen Esther steps up and in the words of her uncle Mordecai steps up for such a time as this she knows God and she's strengthened to stand firm for the sake of her people. Greece's attempt is actually set up through these next verses of Daniel 11, which interestingly only focus on two characters and their lineages, the king of the north and the king of the south. These kings came from two of the generals out of the diadochi of Alexander. The other two essentially ignored. And again, the reason for that is the same. They didn't significantly bother with the people of God, so they're not mentioned in this prophetic vision. Whereas the king of the north and the king of the south were constantly rampaging through the near Middle Eastern land of God's people. Now in verses 5 through 20... This covers about 130 to 150 years of history, and because it's a prophetic vision and not being recorded after the fact, the titles of the king of the north and the king of the south are placeholders for Syrian and uh, egyptian Syrian in the north, Egypt in the south, uh, their kings. Now, who those kings are changes almost each time. There's a new movement in the text. But on one side, you've got the Seleucidian dynasty, and on the other side, you've got the Ptolemaic dynasty, the Seleucians in the north, the Ptolemies in the south. Now, before we go too much further, there's so much strength that is conferred to the hearers of this in in their original context and to us through the word of God as we look back and see again that God knows more about the future than we know about the past. This account is so detailed. Verses 5 through 20 lay out 85 specific instances in history that are recorded as being fulfilled in the centuries to come. A brief summary. Uh, foretells decades of conflicts between the north Syria and the south Egypt. An incredibly detailed attack back and forth of an incredibly detailed sorry back and forth of alliances through broken agreements and uh, coups through attempted through marriage that failed. There's an initial war where the north is victorious followed by a southern comeback. The north irritates the south and enrages the southern king to the point of provoking the south to come up and fight. Rome gets involved. There's a growing world power. It's an incredible foretelling of what's going to come in these centuries between Malachi and Matthew. God is telling Telling his people through Daniel what is going to come in these days and through all of it that they are to know him and to stand firm and they'll need that word because the region of Judea where they are is right in the middle of where these two nations would be at war these 15 verses rip through kings in moments in history until verse 21 where the vision slows way down and focuses in on one king in the north You've heard his name before in our study of Daniel. It's Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was the fourth of his name, Antiochus, and he gave himself the title Epiphanes, which means the glorious one, although the Jewish people kind of did a play on words with that and called him Epimanes, which meant madman. and He was a madman indeed. Again, for the sake of summary, verses 21 through 29 show us what Antiochus was like. He took the throne through a series of murders and assassinations. Verse 21 says, the royal honor was not given to him. It was not given to him. He took it and manipulated it on his own. After some victories and a brief deceitful alliance, he re-engages in war with Egypt. In the middle of this, he has the high priest Ananias murdered to subdue any uprising from Judea. Antiochus exploits a contest for power between two potential heirs in Egypt. And they has huge victories in there. Makes agreements with the rulers of Egypt that he to no one's surprise, eventually breaks and he retreats back to the north with huge riches and huge victory. And along the way, although he's acquired riches, the text says that his heart turned against the people of the covenant, God's people in verse 28, presumably due to the wealth that he knew was located in the temple. And Antiochus isn't done in the South yet. He comes back intent on total victory through two campaigns, neither of which is he able to capture the stronghold of Alexandria in Egypt. And in 168 BC, Rome enters the game. Verse 29 says that this was not like before. And verse 30 lays out that the ships of Kitim will come against him. Katim was associated with the island of Cyprus, which was representative of the Roman Empire joining this war in the South. The feet, fleet of Gaius Pompus Lanus comes against him and humiliates him. Him. There's a story told of Antiochus and, and Gaius meeting in, in a place, and Gaius draws a circle around this man who leads armies, and says, "Before you step out of that circle, you have to decide if you're going to surrender to me or not." That's a little childish. Like it's, it's just like, could you just imagine, like you're the king of Syria. And this dude draws a circle around you and says, hey, it's cool that you're like a king or whatever, but before you step across that line, uh, you need to let me know if you're going to surrender. Hit me back, right? Like like, that's like a stress—that is an incredibly embarrassing thing to happen. Antiochus is humiliated, treated like a child, and he retreats furiously. And during his retreat, the madman chooses to unleash his fury of this embarrassing defeat on the people of Jerusalem. This is what's laid out in verse 30. You can read. The ships of Kittim shall come against him. He shall be afraid and withdraw, and he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. He shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, for though some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, but many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise will even stumble, so that they may be refined." purified and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits its appointed time what's recorded here is broadly considered one of the darkest periods in the history of the jewish people to this point in time as antiochus brings his rage against the people of god Antiochus profanes the temple by ending the Sabbath and making an offering of a pig on the altar of God. If you know anything about Jewish custom, that is the most unclean, most profane thing that he could have done. This is the most, I have been hurt and embarrassed and I am now going to take that hurt and embarrassment out on you. Not the most emotionally healthy individual. He ends the daily offering, the daily worship of the people of God. He prevents them from receiving forgiveness in their mind, prevents them from worshiping their God. He sets up a statue, most likely Zeus of Olympus, possibly as an effort to appease Rome, the abomination that brings desolation. But certainly this is in an effort to embarrass the Jewish people and embarrass their God. He further He further seduces people to violate their relationship with God and with their nation. He pays attention to those who would forsake the holy covenant. He pays attention to those who are attracted to his power and to his practices of profanity and to his pride. He pays attention to them and says, you guys, I'll heap honor on you. I'll make you a part of my people. I'll I'll flatter you, verse 34 says, even to the point at which some of the wise stumble. He seduces people to violate and abandon their relationship with God and their nation." Through flattery and power, he convinces them to abandon all they claim to know about God and join him in his assault against their own people, polarizing an entire nation to be against itself. In this period of time, historians estimate that in a short time, he had 80,000 Jewish men and women killed. He made 40,000 Jewish men and women his own slaves and sold another 40,000 as slaves to other nations. Antiochus' goal here was to rid himself of the embarrassment that he had experienced in Rome, by, from Rome and Egypt, by wiping out the people of the covenant. And yet, verse 32, some people resisted. Those who know their God will stand firm and take action. There were a number of revolts during this time, but this is most likely referring to the Maccabeans of the Maccabean Revolution. This is a group of people that took their religion seriously, themselves seriously, their lives seriously, their commitment seriously, their worship seriously, their uh, honor seriously. They fought to protect all of that in the face of people all around them trading their honor and fidelity to God to have good standing with the powers that be at the time. And Antiochus' goal, hear this, is to wipe the Jewish people off the face of the planet. He wants to divide them so they turn in on one another, and then he's going to systematically take them out while they take each other out as well. And Antiochus, you need to notice, does not accomplish that goal. The result is not that they were wiped out, but rather, verse 35, that the people were refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits its appointed time. There were people who knew God, And they stood firm. And then you have to hear this there were people that did not know God, and they did not stand firm. And then in verse 36, there's a shift. The vision takes a significant turn, very similar to in chapter eight, where it started with a few centuries and a few verses and then slows down at verse 21 to just focus on Antiochus for another 20 or so verses. It then jumps into the future, 15 verses, The then jumps into the future to what verse 35 says will be the appointed time. Here we understand why so much time is spent on Antiochus' epiphanies. Though he did great damage to the people of the covenant, he is not simply here to tell the stories of things to come in the centuries ahead, but to foreshadow what will come at the end end of all days at the appointed time. This is the reason that the angel is giving this vision to Daniel. Chapter 10, verse 14, it's a vision of what will happen to your people in the last days. Verse 36 is turning the attention of us and Daniel from the man Antiochus to the one that he was foreshadowing, who is popularly known as the Antichrist. We see from verse 35, but we also see from historical assessment that closes this chapter, what's described here isn't done by Antiochus. He wants this to be him, but it's not him. He's a foreshadowing of this one who's going to come. Look at verse 36. The king will do as he wills. He will exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. He shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He will prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He'll pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. The god who his father did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He'll make them rulers over many and divide up the land for a price. Now, we just historically, we know this isn't Antiochus, right? He didn't do what he willed. At this point, he did what the Roman army willed. He puts up an image of the abomination that brings desolation, which is the statue of Zeus. He doesn't put up an image of himself, right? He doesn't deal with the strongest fortresses because he can't break Alexandria. He can't conquer Egypt when with Rome involved, he never will. This is not Antiochus. It's not fulfilled in the intertestamental period. These verses aren't. The language here points to the future. In fact, critics that claim that Daniel 11 isn't prophetic and was written after the events foretold that tell a story of of a history entirely focused around Antiochus and Epiphanes actually have to sharply turn and form an argument against themselves at this point because Antiochus does not fit this description. He's foreshadowing someone who will. The one who the Bible sometimes refers to and infrequently in culture is referred to as the Antichrist. One who will mark the appointed time of the end. It's in these verses that we see foreshadowed uh, what I'm going to call the way of the Antichrist. This is the consistent practice within the, the region, by the people, by the one who is the Antichrist. It's summarized in three words, pride, profanity, and power. First, pride. Verse 36, the king shall do as he wills. It's a Pride that seeks self over every other thing, big and small, significant and subtle. Pride that's in an, an obsession with ourself, regardless of the cost to others or even still to us. It ignores the deep work of humility and the love necessary for the sake of our neighbors at the expense of our own self-love. They see pride, we see profanity. verse 36 against the God of gods who will pay no attention to the gods of his father or the one beloved by women. This is a profanity that mocks God. Not a profanity of four-letter words, but a profanity of thought that considers God as inconsequential. It takes humor in watching others worship, mocking them for their trust in God. It's a self-soothing cynicism that mocks the God of gods and the one beloved by women, which is pointing to the one who would come from a woman. Genesis chapter 3, from the seed of women, who is referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It takes no regard of him. Profanity is considering as common or worthless what God calls holy. It writes off the things of God as important or subtly belittles them over time until there's little that's left at all. Profanity is a cancer to worship of God because it mocks and blocks us from seeing who he actually is. Finally in verses 37 and 38, power. He shall magnify himself above all. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses. It's a power that doesn't care who is harmed so long as I keep or increase my power. It's a power that flatters or honors so long as everyone else stays in line. It's a power that disregards justice and righteousness. It's a power that sees people as something to be used. It's a power that elevates the wielder over everybody else. It's a power that tyrannically assumes that others need to serve you. It's a power that says people are pawns, not image bearers of God. Pride, profanity, and power mark the way of the Antichrist. And what is seen in this set of verses is that this way of pride, profanity, and power is described as alluring. It's attractive to people. People abandon their worship and following of God to go into this way of the Antichrist. Just like in the days of Antiochus, in the days of the Antichrist, people will deny and disregard their God, not simply under threat of death or persecution, but due also to the alluring nature of the flattery and apparent honor that comes from a way of life marked by pride, marked by profanity, and marked by power. And this is not just for the weak. This is not just for those who feel like they're novice or new at following Jesus or knowing God. It says that the wise themselves may stumble. It's up and down this text says that those who acknowledge him who acknowledge the antichrist who defer to him who come to him he'll load more and more honor on it's reminiscent of the words of satan in Matthew chapter 4 when he's being when he's tempting jesus in the wilderness and he says worship me and i'll give you all the kingdoms of the world for us it's the alluring lie that everything you've ever wanted everything we've been taught to desire can come your way through the way of the antichrist through pride through profanity and through power all it will cost you is your allegiance and relationship with God. It's a pretty heavy play against our human sinful nature that gravitates naturally towards pride, towards profanity, towards power. And in these verses, we are given a picture of what the way of the Antichrist is. But also in these verses, we're given a picture of how to resist it in verse 32. It's the same thing that Daniel's been showing us through this book. Daniel knew God and he stood firm. In chapter one, he knew God, so he stood firm against the indoctrination that he was experiencing in Babylon. In chapter five, he knew God, so he stood firm when he was offered riches from the king. He said, keep them, I'm gonna tell you what's true. He knew God and he stood firm when the uh, edict went out for him in chapter six to pray that if he prays, you're gonna be put into the lion's den. He prays anyways. He knows God and he stands firm. It's seen in Daniel, it's seen then in Daniel's people and the people of Israel. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 32, they knew God and they stood firm. These things were drawing their people into division. Antiochus and his armies were exploiting the alluring nature of their prideful, profane, and powerful ways to break the Jewish people. And still they knew God and they stood firm against these things. And so for us, how do we resist this way of the antichrist? We know God and we stand firm. begs two questions. We stand firm against what? And how do we know God? First, we stand firm clearly against the way of the Antichrist. We stand firm against pride, against profane practice, against power abuse. We stand firm against any shred of these entering into our lives. And we don't stand firm by just turning away from these things. We stand firm by turning towards something greater. Let me explain. Um, Perhaps some of you have a little bit. Of like leftover Thanksgiving food at your houses right now, I got loaded up with so many Tupperware of leftovers stuffing specifically that I have no idea at all how I'm going to get through it at all. But maybe, maybe some of you go to Costco. Costco.) Um, and you got that $6 gigantic pumpkin pie, right? And then, and then some people ate it, but most people didn't, right? And then the, there's about a half of that left over. And on your way in this morning, there's a part of you as you opened the, the refrigerator door at your apartment to, to reach and make eggs for your family or whatever, that you saw that pie and you said, me and you when I get home after church, right? But, but there's a part of you also that knows, ah, that's not good for me. Because if you go home and you rip through half of a pine- pineapple pie, no, half of a pumpkin pie, you're going to feel terrible. And then you're going to have like your little one yell, dad, where's the pie? And you're going to be like, suck it up, kid. Stuff tough, tough happens. Like it's like, it's going to be bad, right? Like, like it's going to be that. You're going to have to like navigate all of that. It's going to feel bad. You're going to feel bad. It's going to be bad. It's not going to be good, right? You don't want to get played by the pie. All right. So like that, that can happen. On the other hand, though, what you don't want to do either because it doesn't work, is look at the pie and say, I'm not going to eat you. And then every time the refrigerator door opens, all you're thinking about is there's a pie in there. And every time the family leaves and you're alone at the house by yourself, you're like, there's a pie in there. And what you're relying on in that moment is your willpower and your ability, and your behavior modification. Every time, the pie is still ruling your mind because you removed it from your sight, and you put up boundaries and barriers around it. You removed it, but you didn't replace it with anything else. And there you are, all up in your pie. It's not simply about turning away and removing something, but about replacing it with another thing. So what about that leftover piece of turkey thigh? with a little salt, little little pepper, a little butter in the pan, sear it up real nice, three-day-old juices, like just, just getting locked into that joint. Maybe for like the vegetarians in the room, it's like reheating some green bean casserole. <laughs> and for the vegans in the room, your green bean casserole with plant butter. We have plant butter. Um, and you just, it, it starts to, to allow you to say, I'm not just going to say no to the pie. I'm going to say no to the pie because I'm saying yes to something that I want more than I want the pie. All of a sudden, the pie isn't quite as attractive. Now, now hear me, it's still there. You got to admit that you still want it, but there's something else that your attention is fixed on. The way of the Antichrist is alluring. It's attractive. It's pie. We, we have to be honest about our sin and our weakness in regard to the alluring nature of these things. When I tolerate the way of the Antichrist in my life, when I tolerate pride or profanity that looks at the things God calls holy and calls them common, or when, when I give in to, to some sort of use of power that disregards the people who are around me, I have to be honest about myself and not just say, oh, I didn't want to do that. No, clearly I did. Something in me wanted to do that in that moment. I can't just lie and say, no, I didn't want the pie. Then why'd you eat half of it? Like you did want the pie. She just knew it wasn't, and wasn't good. There, there's something about it that was so alluring. And even when you try to turn away from it, you're like, "Ah, oh, I'm still drawn back to pride. I'm still drawn back to treating those things as common. I'm still drawn back to a use of power in this way. It's alluring and it will remain that way unless you have a vision of the way of Jesus that is stronger than the way of the Antichrist. Unless you have a knowledge of God, an experientially an, an educational, growing grip on who God is and what he's like, it's the opposite of the way of the Antichrist. Just think about it: the opposite of pride is love, love of neighbor, and love of enemy. It is a costly love. The opposite of profanity is worship. Think about 2 Samuel 24, 24, where David says, I don't want to bring an offering to my God that doesn't cost me anything. I don't want it to just be simple. I want to bring my best to God with my life, with my song, with my body, with my actions, with my obedience. I want to worship. It comes out of that place. We, the opposite of power abuse is justice and unity that we pursue and we fight for it together because justice in the context of the relationships that we have around us, unity because of the The nature of us all having been who are in Christ, adopted into the same family by Jesus Christ. We love God and we love one another. We stand firm against pride, profanity, and power. We stand firm against the way of the Antichrist by having a better vision, a bigger vision of following the way of Jesus. We need to stand firm against those things, but how do we do it? All right. What strengthens us to stand? We'll check the verse again. It says, Those who know God will stand firm. Now it's talking about the the Maccabeans. They revolted. I don't think that what's calling for here is a revolt in our lives and our culture, but I think it is calling for resilience. That knowing God will form you into a resilient people. That when we know the love of God, we'll stand firm in the love of God and resist pride. When we know the nature of God, who he is and what he's done through Christ, we stand firm and shamelessly worshiping him and we resist profanity. When we know the justice and righteousness and adoptive work of God through Christ, we stand firm in his justice and righteousness and we resist power abuse. So the question we're left with is simply this. Do you know God? Not do you know about him, but do you know him? Not can you list off his resume, but do you have relationship? Do you know God? Knowing in the Hebrew is this deep relational knowledge, a blend of education and experience. Like, do you know him? Like, when you think about God, like, what do you think of? Of God, to be clear, there are wrong answers to that question. You think of someone like Zeus, mythological and judgmental. You think of a jester, like he doesn't care and he's just doing things in our life for a good laugh as he watches a struggle, as a scientist entering variables into our life just to see how we'll react as a science experiment where God becomes the frog in your anatomy class that you're just picking apart like a subject in school, not known deeply as the God who's deserving of our worship and our lives. You seem like an ATM where you put good things in and God has to spit good things back out. You seem as a portrait that you hold up in your room or, or in your apartment or in your home so that when people walk in they see it because it's more important for you to look like you follow Jesus than to actually follow him. Or is he or is he a good father? Is he the savior? Is he a very present help in time of need? Is he glorious? Is he worthy of worship? When you think about God, like what do you what do you think about? A.W. Tozer said that was the most important question that anybody could ask. Why? Because those who know God will stand firm. If your answer's wrong and you don't know him, you won't stand firm. This question is not esoteric, do you know God? I love the academy and I love the institutions, but the numbness around questions like this to poke and prod around speculative and lifeless debate seems useless to me when we're talking about standing firm in the face of difficulty. We're talking about being resilient against the way of someone who would like to destroy and deceive. When you think of God, what do you think of? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you can claim to know God at all. I just ask you two questions. Out of today, if you were before God, would He let you into heaven? Would He invite you into eternal life with Him? And if you say yes, how confident are you in your answer? Like, why? You see, John 4. is the words of Jesus where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 17.3 says, this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. The only way to true knowledge of God is to have eternal life with him through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that you and I could never live and died a death on a cross that you and I deserve for our sin that creates separation between us and God. He experienced separation on the cross for us so that we who put our trust in him might never know separation between us and God ever that he would bridge that gap between us and God take our sin into the grave and rise again to new life so that you might know with assurance that you know God that he knows you that you're saved and in his family if you put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ do you know God? Christian Do you know God? If you're in Christ, you've had a moment where you came to know God. The question for you is, are you progressively knowing him more and more? There is a way of knowing God that fuels a deeper hunger and a deeper desire to know him more, even in the midst of difficulty. I've said it before from the stage, but what if following Jesus doesn't get easier as time goes on? What if it gets harder? Does the way that you know God cultivate a resilience within you to stand firm regardless of what comes? Do you know God? I get nervous sometimes that we can feel apathetic or assumptive in our knowledge of God. Like knowing God is a swimming pool. We're very aware of the edges and very aware of the depth. And eventually you grow bored of him. But knowing God is far less like a swimming pool and far more like an endless ocean that you wade out into where some of the areas are graciously shallow, others are unsettlingly deep, but you're always safe as you wade deeper and deeper through scripture and prayer, life and obedience, worship and mission into knowing God through Christ and growing and knowing him all the more. Me right now, if I can just be honest with you, um, there are two areas of my life where I'm growing and knowing God. The first is prayer Um, about four years ago, I got around a couple, Steve and Sonia. um, And I was around them in a pre-service prayer before we were going to preach at our church plant out in Pennsylvania. And they started to pray, and the Holy Spirit of God convicted me in that moment. And I realized, whatever they have, I don't have that. However they're praying, I don't have that. With such intimacy and such relationship, but also such reverence and such familiarity, I I was like, whatever you have, I don't have it, and I wanted it so badly. And so I asked, I started reading books. I started just getting all this education, but I also started experiencing prayer. I just got into spaces with them where I could learn from them how to pray. I traded my swimming pool for an ocean, and it's been a gift of grace to know God through prayer this way. I just didn't know that I could. I didn't know that it was possible. I didn't know that you could be this familiar and this reverent. I didn't know and I look ahead and I cannot wait to say that in years to come. The second way right now for me is in loving him, which sounds really simple. but maybe that simplicity is just sharp and is, is cutting because God's reteaching me how to love him in everything that I do. Not looking at him as if I need to bring the things of my life into my relationship with him, or sorry, bring him into the things of my life, but rather bring everything in my life into my relationship with him. And if it doesn't fit with God, perhaps it shouldn't fit in my life. That's cultivating a desire within me to know the scope and size of the gospel of God, to grow in a godly sorrow that leads to confession and repentance of sin, not an internalized shame that leads me to hide my sin. I just, I just want to know him more. Like that that's where I don't know how to end this better than that. Just to say, I just, I shamelessly want to know God more. And I want you to know him more too. Because if we know him more, then we'll be strengthened to stand firm in him. So just a simple practice. What would happen if you started more mornings with Jesus? You started more mornings being like, I want to spend time knowing you. What would happen if you spent, started every morning with Jesus? What would happen if you spent more time every morning with Jesus? Who would you be? How would you know him? How strengthened would you be to stand firm? Do you know God? I'm going to ask Jenner to come on up and just ask all of us for just a moment of focus and concentration to close your eyes and, and bow your heads. Um, I just want to give you some space to pray and to respond. Do you know him? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I need you to just stare at the cross of Jesus Christ for a moment and just look at him. crown of thorns on his head nails through his hands wound in his side bleeding on the cross dying on the cross bearing the sin of the world on the cross and to understand that he did that because God so loved the world that he sent his son so that whoever would believe in him Whoever would believe in him would not perish and spend eternity apart from God, but have eternal life with God. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand, you don't know him, but you can. And Jesus has done everything possible for you to know him, for you to have relationship with God. All you need to do is come to him and say, Jesus, I'll repent of my sin, I give it to you. I trust you as Lord and as Savior that you died and you rose again so that I might be saved. I trust you. Christian, perhaps your prayer simply needs to be, God, help me to know you more. Whatever that would look like, whatever that would be like, for him to help you know him more. Take a moment, however you need to pray, whatever you need to ask, however you need to respond. And then in a moment, we'll take communion. Jesus, we want to know you more. I want to know you more. I'm thankful for what I've known. I'm thankful for what I've experienced. I'm thankful for your nearness and your witness. I'm thankful that all the things that I've learned about you over these years were always true. Lord, I want to know you more. Help us to know you more. God, help us to know you even as we practice communion. Please, Jesus, it's in your name. Amen. You can take out your communion cup. We're gonna practice knowing God through the cup and the bread. That as we take the bread, as Jesus said, his body broken for us, that we know him through his body that was broken on the cross that we know God through Jesus who's the way the truth and the life that we know you Jesus because of what you've done we know you God because of what Jesus has done we remember it we're grateful for it we take it seriously Not any sin that needs to be repented of Lord that that we would take the time to do so. God, that you would forgive us. You'd forgive us. And we take the bread in remembrance of his body that was broken so that we might know God. You can open up the cup. like the old song said, it reaches to the highest mountain and flows to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength day by day, it will never lose its power. That the blood of Jesus was shed so that we might be forgiven of our sin. The blood of Jesus was shed so that we might know God. So as we take it, we take it in remembrance, Jesus, of what you've done so that we might know you. We take the cup. So Jesus, we thank you. You have done everything that's necessary for us to know God. Teach us to stand firm as we know him. Teach us to to, to hold true and to hold fast as we know you. God, I am grateful that Antiochus fell. And I am grateful that the Antichrist will fall. I am grateful that in the end, God, we win. Your text says that no help will come to them and that their end will be sure. But God, in the middle of here and that moment, when we come in victorious, help us to know you so that we might stand firm. Help us to know you so we might be strengthened. Help us to know you so we might be resilient. In Jesus' name.